Good morning, everyone. Well, I do want to encourage you to be here at our Lord's Supper service tonight. I, don't, I haven't heard back from him, but I'm hoping to get Steve Smeltzer to share. He just came back from Poland, and uh, for those of you who know, uh, he went out to Poland to help with our, um, our denomination has a, has a relief agency arm of our denomination, and so Steve's a part of that, so whenever there's natural disasters, he's usually on the ground uh, representing the love of Christ, and so they were in Poland helping out with some of the U- Ukrainian refugees, so hoping to have him share tonight. We just saw him back in service, so uh, it's good to be together with you. It's good to see David Wong back. Hi, brother. Good to have you back with us. Well, open up to the book of Romans chapter 2 as we continue to study this amazing book. Uh, If you need a Bible and you don't have one, feel free to open up uh, to page 883 in the pew Bibles in front of you. Page 883, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. You know, when Christianity began um, on Pentecost Day, it, it was the smallest of an outlier belief system. Um, At the beginning of the book of Acts, we probably have about 120 Christians in all of Palestine at the time that boasted a population of 4 million. So if you do the the math, the ratio was you had basically for for every Christian you had in Palestine, you had 33,000 of them that were not. Yet in 30 years, just three decades, Christianity impacted the entire Roman Empire. And it wouldn't be far off the mark to say that the Greco-Roman world was soon going to be eclipsed by the Christian world. And that's exactly what happened in history. By contrast, according to the Pew Research Center, 63% of Americans claim to be Christians. So roughly 209 million people out of our population. So that ratio is not 1 to 33,000, but 1 to 1.6. Yet, for some reason, the story seems to be unfolding in the same dramatic fashion, unfortunately, in the opposite direction. Now, to be clear, while Christianity seems to be kind of waning in the West, Christian faith is just exploding in the East and in the Southern Hemisphere. But for our purposes, we have to consider, with so many professing Christians, why does the impact seem so negligible considering how it began? Maybe our current problem is very similar to the Jewish problem that Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 2 in verses 1 through 16. Then and now, you see, people have often replaced the life-altering, life-changing, urgent message of the gospel of repentance from sin and faith and new life in Christ for maybe a more bland morality or maybe an attractive but powerless religion. What do I mean by that? Recall, because it's been about a week since we've been in the text, because last week we had Mission Sunday. Remember at the end of Romans chapter 1, you can imagine how many people in the church of Rome, probably at the time, was giving a hearty amen to what Paul was saying as God's wrath being revealed against the godless idolatry of the secular Gentile world. Their sexual perversions, their immoral practices, and their godless lifestyles. You can imagine them all saying, yeah, God, you get them. Certainly the Jews would have agreed, whether or not they were part of the Christian church, the Jews would have agreed. Many even of the moral Roman citizens would have agreed as they saw the crumbling debauchery of the Roman Empire. They might have looked at this fledgling church and said, this this is a better alternative. But as we get to chapter 2, Paul turns the focus from the immorality of the godless to the morality of the God-fearing from the irreligious idolatry of the world to the religious idolatry of the church. 
But it's not simply the religious idolatry of the church that Paul is aiming for, but he's also aiming at the religious idolatry of the moralist who doesn't even go to church. You see, what Paul is saying is that God's wrath is being revealed against all humanity, the immoral who live godless lives, as well as the moral who live godless lives, but just don't know it because in their hearts they're religious too. In short, what Paul is saying is he's making it very clear that religion isn't enough to escape the wrath of God, and he's going to give us three reasons in these 16 verses. So let me put them up on the screen for you, see where we're going this morning, and then I want us to stand and read the text. But the three reasons that Paul gives why religion isn't enough is, number one, is because religion tends to play favorites, deciding who's in, who's out. The second reason that religion isn't enough is because religion, quite frankly, is just too easy. And the third and final reason is because it is not God's word, but it's something that we've created and fabricated on our own. That's where we're going this morning, but if you have Romans opened up, would you stand with me as we read God's word, these first 16 verses in chapter 2. Paul writes this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I would say the first zinger in this really 16 verses full of zingers, is found right there at the end of verse 1. Notice Paul says, you practice the very same things. Whoa. I imagine the original readers, or as you know, they, they, they didn't all have a copy of this, so someone's reading it to them like we did several weeks ago. I can almost imagine the impact as Paul says, you practice the very same things. Wait, what a minute. They stagger back. What, what is Paul talking about? We, we don't worship false gods. We don't engage in homosexual sex. We don't murder. We, we don't hate God. And this is the first thing we need to realize, is that the religious person or, or just the moralists, they forget that all of our sin, 
all of our sin, right, is only a difference of degree and situation, but it's the same in kind. In other words, the things that we do, they're only different in the degree and situation in which we do them, but they're the same kind of thing. You may not worship a false god, but do you worship the true God falsely? You may not struggle with homosexual sin, but do you struggle with heterosexual sin? You may not be guilty of murder, but do you kill someone's character through your gossip? It's all the same kind of thing. You may not hate God, but it doesn't follow from that that you love God either. You see, sin, we may look at the external realities of them and say, oh, that's completely different from me, but that's what the religious, that's what the moralist does. All of our sin is just different in the particularities and the degree to which we engage in it, but it's the same kind of impulse underneath it all. Now, Paul, the reason I can say that, the reason Paul is saying that, is he's simply riffing on what Jesus said in his, one of his most well-known sermons. Keep your finger in Romans 2. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. First book of the New Testament, a few books to the, to the left. Matthew chapter 5, this is one of Jesus' most well-known sermons, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Now listen to what Jesus is saying because this is exactly what Paul is saying in making the accusation that you're doing the same exact kind of thing, even though on the surface it looks entirely different. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul is saying. You see, religion, friends, it, it is so behavioristic. Morality can be so shallow at times, always thinking about the externality of things, just the results, as if it's only the results that matter. But Christianity, the gospel, Jesus Christ is always pushing past the externals, whether they look good or whether they look bad, and getting to what's below. You notice how in, in Matthew 5, Jesus was talking about what you've heard said before, and, and it's, it's just the results, it's the external, it's the things we see, murder, adultery. But what's the seed of murder? And Jesus knows it. He says it's anger. The seed of murder is anger. And, and they look at just the effect of adultery. But what is the seed of adultery? It's lust. So the religionist or the moralist just looks at the external behaviors, but Jesus knows the things that we see is the fruit of a root that's in our heart. And Christianity always goes for the heart, what's inside of a person. Now, for these Jews, in part, what probably made it hard for them to see their own sin was, in fact, their religious blessings. You see, in chapter 4, or excuse me, back in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul's referring, he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness? What is he referring to there? The fact that God in his mercy had given to the Jewish people Torah, that he had revealed to them his law that they had the word of God, that they had the law of God, and they even received the sign of circumcision as a sign of God's covenant with them. Now, Paul makes that really clear in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. But as verses 1 through 3 show us, in fact, it just hardened them to the plight of others. The fact that they had God's word and they had the sign of the covenant, it just hardened their hearts. And verse 5 tells us they were hard and impenitent. 
Now, that's not a word we use too often today, impenitent, right? But what impenitent means is they were unable to feel their own shame. That's what impenitent means, unable to feel their own shame. So the question we have to ask is, why, why couldn't they feel their own shame, right? If they had God's word, Torah, why couldn't they feel their own shame? And here's the thing. This is my point here. It's because the religions that we tend to choose for ourselves plays favorites. And, and usually we will adopt a religion that plays to our strengths and may, it plays favorites, and we tend to be the ones that are, are the in, and everyone else is on the out. And then we are able to judge others. We judge ourselves as righteous, and we judge others as failing by our own appointed standards. Now, to be clear, now you might be sitting here and saying, yeah, that's the problem with you religious people. Now, we just need to be clear here. Remember, uh, two weeks ago, I talked about Otto Rank, Sigmund Freud's one of his most brightest students, he said, human beings by nature are religious beings. You imagine that shocked Freud, right? He didn't say they're psychological beings. He said, human beings are religious beings. That's because Rank had an insight a little bit deeper than Freud. He wasn't talking about people. They like to go to church and they like to, you know, tithe and do those things, attend Bible study. No, he was just understanding the fundamental reality of the human heart is that we are worshiping creatures, and to prove the point, I talked about David Foster Wallace, one of the most uh, popular American novelists of our century. In his commencement speech to Kenyon College, he said, the reality is we all get to worship. And as a matter of fact, he says, we all will worship. The only choice is what it is we worship. And then I talked about the Atlantic Magazine article that said the new religion sweeping the land that's competing for congregate members everywhere is the religion of workism that we love to work, we find our identity from work. And so when I say whatever religion we adopt, I just, I don't mean like, oh, I'm a Methodist or I'm a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian, that's not what I mean. I mean, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a, I believe in Catholicism or I believe in scientism or I believe in feminism or I believe in environmentalism or I'm a Protestantism and on and on and go. Whatever it is, we adopt a religion for ourselves and we tend to be the ones that say we're the, we adopt it because it, we play favorites with it. I like this religion because it works for me and it fits how I go through life. And then we judge others by that system. Friends, we all live by stories of sin and salvation. Every one of us, whether or not you are consciously religious traditionally or not, we all live by stories of sin and salvation. I can prove it to you. Maybe I should recycle better than I do, but I have some friends that they get on me because they recycle. They have their own metal straws, and I'm a heathen because I still want plastic straws at my fast food places. They look down their nose because I'm not recycling enough. Don't you know, Rick, that you're destroying the planet? What's going on? It's a story of sin and salvation, right? I mean, I should recycle. I've been composting my food lately, so at least I'm doing that. The point simply is... We live by stories of sin and salvation. So the EV drivers, I mean, I, I literally, when I was at Target the other day, I walked past, I parked on the side of the store, and I saw all these people with their EV charging units charging up their EVs, and they were laughing because all the long lines at the Costco and the gas stations. And I, they were talking about how much better it is to have an EV while they're standing there for 20 minutes charging their EV, laughing at the people who wait in line for 20 minutes for gas. The point isn't want gas or EVs better. The point is we all have these stories of sin and salvation. And recycler looks down on the non-recycler. The gas guzzler laughs at the EV driver. 
The mask wearer judges the non-mask wearer and vice versa. We do it all the time. Family value suburbia judges self-centered urban types, sophisticated urban types, look down their noses at the sheltered suburbanites. Zoomers judge boomers, boomers judge zoomers, Xers judge you all, right? I mean, that's, just, that's how we live in these stories of sin and salvation. And you know what? They all have their own Ten Commandments that tell you what you're supposed to do or not to do. They all have their liturgies that tell you how you're supposed to behave. They all have their fellowship groups, and they all have their ways of exercising discipline when you fail against their commandments and liturgy. The point is, as human beings, we are religious. We all have gospels. And any gospel we'd adhere to except the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be shallow and fickle. The Jews that Paul is writing to trusted in the mere fact that they had Torah. They trusted that they were okay with God because they were the possessors of the law. And and in fact, it blinded them. And we'll talk about that. But before we do that, we have to ask ourselves, if you're a Christian, is there something you're trusting in that tells you that you are okay with God? And that's an important question because ironically, the thing that you're trusting in may be the very reason you actually don't know God yourself. Let me illustrate in three different ways. I I think they're going to be helpful. Number one, do you feel that you are a pretty moral or upright person? And so, You're a good guy. You're an honest woman. Do you feel that you must be right with God because you have high ethical standards? Friends, if that is true, then could it be the fact that you're trusting your character than Christ's righteousness? And at the end of the day, who can you give the credit for making you right with God? You, because it's your character. It's your character that makes you feel that you're right with God, that you're okay with God. Another illustration, do you trust that maybe that life is working for you, so, you know, hashtag blessed kind of thing, so you must be okay with God because your circumstances seem to be turning up roses. And so obviously God must love you. If that is how you feel you're okay with God, then it's your circumstances, not the character of God, ironically enough, that is informing your Christian faith. In other words, your Christian faith is based more on good circumstances than God's character. You've linked the two together such that if your circumstances turn bad, you conclude God must not love me. When the reality is your circumstances, the hardships you endure, the suffering you go through may be the very means by which God is displaying his glory to the world around you. But if you base the fact that you are blessed, that's how you know you're okay with God, what happens when you're not externally blessed? Third and finally, this will be ironic, but maybe it's your sense of guilt and obligation that you're trusting in. This may sound weird. Let me unpack it. Maybe you're serving God to assuage your guilt because after all, here's how the reasoning goes, if you love God, you will serve him, right? And so since you feel that sense of guilt and you're submitting yourself to it, you're trusting that rather than the reality of his abounding grace to you in the gospel. And so maybe you're sensing that, you're trusting that I feel guilty and I'm serving God so I must be okay rather than saying I don't need to serve God out of guilt because he's gracious and kind to me. There are many ways we trust in things rather than trusting in him. 
And this can be if you're religious or moralist. You might be living by a code. However noble it is, here's the other problem. You can't have a personal relationship with a code. It's this abstract thing. What Paul is constantly going to get us to in the book of Romans, and this is something we have to always remind ourselves as religious beings, right, is that we're always tempted to go by systems, whether those systems are overtly religious in nature, traditionally speaking, or irreligious and secular by nature. We love to go by systems, but Christianity is presenting not a system but a person. And so we have to ask, is Christ our prize? Is Christ our hope? Is Christ our desire? Or in a bizarre way, are you just using Christ to prop you up in the same way that somebody might use yoga or relationships or money or travel or alcohol to prop them up? When you look at it that way, is there much difference between us and the the irreligious Gentile world that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1? See, that's what the Jews were doing with the law. They had this thing, the law. And they were using it and playing favorites through it. You're not like us, the Jew, and therefore you you are lame. God's wrath should come upon you because you're not like us, the Jews, who have law. They weren't trusting in it to lead them to God. The Torah became an idol itself, just like the Gentiles had their idols. In other words, it was the same, just different in kind. And they couldn't see that. They needed repentance, a change of heart. They settled for religion, a system of do's and don'ts. Look at verse 5, 2-5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's a way to think of what he's saying in verse 5. Here it is. Grace that does not lead to repentance is grace that will lead to judgment. Let me say that again. Paul, I think what Paul is communicating, the spirit there is that grace that does not lead to a transformed, repentant heart is grace that will lead to your judgment because of God's goodness and kindness was used in a way he did not intend. And so religion's not enough because we tend to play favorites by it. We pick and choose the religion that puts us in the favored category, and we look down our noses at those who don't fit that category. We miss the whole point of the gospel. Secondly, religion's not enough because, quite frankly, it's just too easy. Now, I want to say something that's going to kind of come as a shock to modern evangelical ears, but it's true. I mean, it's literally written in the text. But before I say it, um, and you think I'm a heretic, let me just say this. You always got to love it when your pastor says something like that, right? So let me be clear. We are justified by faith. We are justified by faith. That's one of the grand, great themes of the book of Romans. We are justified by faith, but we will be judged by works. I mean, look at it. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Literally, it's almost a verbatim, excuse me, quotation of the Old Testament. Psalm 62, let's get it up here, verse 12. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Why? For you will render to a man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 12. Does not he keep watch over your soul, know it? And will he not repay a man according to his work? Paul is quoting almost verbatim from the Old Testament. Paul, the great man who talks about being justified by faith, knows we will be judged by works. Friends, the Christian life is not lip service. 
It is a life of service. You're real clear on that. The Christian life is not lip service, something that you can kind of make a, 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 send, a, a mental ascent to. It is a life of service. John Calvin said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves us, but the faith that saves us will never be alone. It's not because we're motivated by guilt, friends, because we're motivated by gratitude to what God has done. And these Jews were thinking, hey, we've got the law. We've got the sign of circumcision. We're good. We can check off the box of our religious behaviorism. And some people do the same today. Maybe right now. Go to church. Check. Attend Bible study. Check. Give some money. Check. Serve. Check. And that's really easy to do. I mean, and the hardest thing about that whole process is maybe just sitting here for 40 minutes listening to me bluster on. But relatively speaking, that's pretty easy to do. And yet we feel that is the sum total of our religious service. Attend Bible study, check, give, check, go to church occasionally, check. What Paul is saying here in verses 7 through 10 particularly is that this is how you tell who genuinely are those who love God from those who don't. And the key phrase is right there in the beginning of verse 7. To those who by patience in well-doing. Okay, so, so that's the key phrase there. By, in, by patience in well-doing, and what does he say? Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He, speaking of God, will give eternal life. So that phrase there, by patience, do well-doing, uh, the, the word behind the word patience there, it's, it's a lot more robust than our English concept of patience. In the Greek, it means to bear up under, to endure uh, under difficulty, opposition, and stress, sometimes overwhelming odds. It was, it was such a word that the Greek writer Isocrates would speak of the Spartans putting up with the danger of war. That's the idea behind here. And what Paul is saying is that those who seek the promise, eschatological rewards of glory and honor and immortality, Christ will give that reward. If you've been here during our study of Revelation, it's the same thing. Remember John would constantly say, endure, overcome, conquer. It's the same idea that John was getting at in the book of Revelation. That there will be a reward for those who overcome, that those who persist and those who endure, God will reward. James says something very similar in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. It's the same Greek word behind that. We just translated it slightly differently here. Under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, this... This is not just checking off the box of some religious behaviorism. This is the fortitude of a soldier who's going to take a hill regardless of the price it might cost him. That's what Paul's talking about. Those who by patience in well-doing continue to seek honor and glory and immortality. They're at it. They're living this way. Friends, it is the husband that will lay down his life for his wife in killing his own sin. It is the wife who will forgive her husband's forgetfulness for the 10,000th time. It's the friend who will overlook the same slight again and again. It's the patience that will put up with being rejected for Christ and not fitting in or being accepted as that price. 
It's the person who will deny their rights so their patience can win a hearing for the gospel. It is not a box that can be checked. It is a life that you pursue. That's what Paul is talking about here. And religion, it's just way too easy. Show up, give a little, serve a little, do your time, you're done. You feel good about yourself. I'm okay with God. That is not it. It is just way too easy. This kind of life that we're talking about, that Paul's referring to here, can only be fueled, friends, by heartfelt repentance from sin because you've seen its ugliness. You've seen its devastation. You've seen its deformity, and its face is you. And you know it, and you see it, and you cry out and say, Lord, make me something different. I don't want to be this. And it changes you because you are repenting and you're pursuing righteousness, not religion. You see, this kind of patient well-doing could never be fueled by religion because at the first sign of difficulty or unmet need or opposition or discomfort, you give up and you give in. And you just keep playing the religious game. Show up, smile, give, serve, you're done. But that is not enough. That only makes you like the Jews who look down at others when they created their systems. So religion is not enough because we tend to play favorites because we create our own standards of sin, salvation, right, and wrong, and we happen to always be the ones that are right, and everyone else, the ones we don't like, they happen to be wrong. We settle for religion rather than repentance. Religion isn't enough because it is too easy. We create these religious systems and standards that you and I can easily meet. But the Bible constantly says we are held accountable to a completely different standard, Christ's standard of right and wrong, sin and righteousness. Our morality, our religious liturgies are no substitute for repentant lifestyle. And we exchange righteousness for religion. It's not enough. Finally, briefly, the third reason religion isn't enough is because it's not God's word. Look at verses 12 through 16. You, you can't ignore, like it's just in four verses, 12 times God's law, his word, the gospel is mentioned in just four verses. What's Paul getting at? Not, number one, we've got to reconcile at the end of the day, it's not about what we say or what we do, what our society says, what our society does. It comes back to the final authority, the final court of arbitration, which is God's word. Now, if points one and two that I just made this morning were about the impartiality of God's judgment against humanity, because regardless of whether you're a a pagan Gentile or a moral Jew or anything in between, that's all of us, we're all doomed to our sin because we replaced repentance and righteousness with religion. So that's points one and two. Point three shows the universality of God's judgment, and it's all based on his word, right? And that's what we see here. It is God's word that will judge us. And the problem is with our religious systems and standards, we play our favorites. We pick who's righteous and who's not. We've done that. We talked about that. And then our behaviors and lifestyles, based on those systems, they're always weighted toward us, and they never demand anything from us, so they're always easy to meet. So we create our religions, and some religions are religious in nature, and some are um, secular in nature, but they all lack repentance and righteousness and that's why we're all condemned by them, regardless of what they might look like on the top, on the, on the outside. 
Point three here shows the universality of God's judgment based on his word. And whether you have it in a formal sense like the, like the Jews did or not, right? Or you have it in an informal sense like all humanity has. And Paul mentioned that. Number one, creation. That's, that's how we have the word, God's revelation informally. Revela- uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 19, 20. Remember he says, you're all without excuse because we all see it. And we talked about the philosopher atheist, Anthony Flew. A lifetime of atheism. He made a career out of it. And he rocked the philosophical world and says, I can no longer hold to atheism. It is simply not intellectually honest. I must follow the evidence wherever it leads, even if I don't want it to go there. Uh, another one, Thomas Nagel, New York City University professor. He, he says blatantly I, in his book, Mind and Cosmos, I don't want God to be real. I love that Nagel was so honest about it. He says the, the bottom line is I don't want God to be real but I can't deny it. So we know. And if not through the creation, we see here in chapter 2, verse 15, there's a hint within our conscience. Notice as he says, written in their hearts. Written in their hearts. But at the end of the day, it is not our conscience that will judge us. It's going to be God's gospel. Notice verse 16. He says it, on that day, which by the way, in our study of Revelation, we spoke a lot about that day, right? When according to my gospel, now Paul's not making, a, like, there's not like Paul's gospel different from the regular gospel. He's just the apostle to the Gentiles. This is a Gentile church by and large. So he's talking about the gospel. He says, this is my gospel. This is what I'm bringing to you. He doesn't have a separate gospel. The point is, on that day, according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Friends, what this means is we need revelation. We need God to reveal himself as much as possible, as fully as possible. And here's the great thing about the Christian faith. Here's the great thing about this religion, as of all the religions out there. It is not us reaching out to God. It is not us reaching out for our own meaning. It is God reaching out to us. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 13 verses later, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What's he talking about? You know, he's talking about Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The writer to the Hebrews says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, he being God, speaking to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, oh, it's only in Jesus that all three of these, revelation, repentance, and righteousness, is made possible. It is what makes Christianity different than anything else out there. It is the only system that has all three, the full revelation of God, a way to bring about repentance and provide us the righteousness we need. All other gospels, all other religions are shallow and fickle and on the surface We tend to judge each other by them. We play favorites with them. It's just way too easy. It plays to our instincts, except the gospel. God revealed himself in his son, and that revelation makes repentance possible. And when we come to him in repentance, 
When we come to him because we see what sin is and we don't want it, he makes righteousness possible as he enables us and animates our lives with his presence through the giving of his Holy Spirit. We need these three things, and only Christianity offers them. Revelation, repentance, and righteousness. At the very best, we create shallow facsimiles of these three. As we conclude, think about what's going on. Maybe having the odds in our favor for so long has not been a good thing after all. We seem to do much better when the odds were 1 to 33,000 than 1 to 1.6. Maybe it's because it's been easy to buy into the religion of Christianity than to bow the knee to Christ as Lord of life. I want to encourage you, if you haven't bought into Christianity but you have bought into another religion instead, are you sure that it's not failing you as well? The way forward is the same for all of us. Number one, it's, it's three steps, and they map onto the three points I made this morning. Number one, we need to admit that God's just judgment against our systems of salvation and sin is right, and that we created our own religions and judge other people unfairly by them while unfairly giving us credit So we need to admit and turn from that. Number two, we need to admit that we seek to live lives that are just way too easy. It's way too doable and explainable, and we get the credit. You see, Christianity is calling us something, too, that is impossible. That's right. It is impossible. The life of Christ cannot be lived without the life of Christ. So if you're trying to live the life of Christ without the life of Christ, you're doomed. Your option either is continue in powerless religion and become a really self-suffocating religious prig, I'm sorry, but that's true, or to repent and recognize you need the Holy Spirit to transform you. So those are the things we too admit. Admit our own systems of religion fail. Admit that we're trying to live our lives too easy without Jesus empowering us. And third and finally, thank God for revealing his son to us in the gospel that makes repentance and revelation and righteousness possible. The next couple of weeks, actually the next couple of weeks is we're heading into Easter season. So next week it's, it's Palm Sunday and then we're going to Easter Sunday. And then we get back into our study of Romans. We've got two more weeks of Paul. Uh, the, the next, we pick it up with the why religion isn't enough part two. And we have a third week after that before Paul gets to the good news. And this is instructive of us. When we present the gospel, if we don't know what the bad news is, we are not going to love the good news. So I encourage you to continue to hang in there as we see what God's word has for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your righteousness that you have given to us. I would say freely, it's free for us, but it cost you dearly in that it cost you your son. Lord, it's just mind-blowing that you would give him for us, but that is your character and heart because you love us fiercely. Lord, help us to be transformed. You want us to have that same love for this world that fights against you. That's why we're here. Lord, would you help us to be ambassadors to this world, that we wouldn't be caught up in religion, but recognize that we need repentance. We need to be fueled by that every day so that we might have the righteousness of Christ that's revealed to us in your Son. And we'll thank you for it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, 
visit us at www.ccclh.org. 